As most of you know, Pastor Carl is back in North Carolina, along with Nathan. They're there for the Shepherds Conference, <clears throat> and Pastor is also there for a couple weeks of continuing education. So um, you're going to get a chance to hear uh, Brother Troy preach this morning. Um, Troy grew up in, in the southeast corner of Nebraska. Uh, we'll pray for him. Uh, he moved to Laramie, Wyoming after college to go to seminary at the West Institute. After graduating, Troy moved to Cary, North Carolina, where he completed his Master's of Divinity at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He then moved back to Laramie, where he helped lead the Bible Institute program for the seminary for the last two years. Troy married his wife, Victoria, just less than a year ago, and they joined us here in Cheyenne this July when Troy came on staff at FBC as the Director of Music and Discipleship. He will be the main teacher of our new program, 119, in January, and has a passion to help people understand their Bible better. Uh, it was a joy to have them join us. Uh, right after they came in July, uh, joy, uh, Troy was instrumental in helping us through VBS. Um, they've gone on, they're, they're leading a small group. Uh, Troy teaches Sunday school, and it's, it's a pleasure. It, it's such an encouragement for me personally to see younger people who love the Lord. Younger, younger people that want to stand up and serve Christ, aren't ashamed of it. Um, that's why it's so important for a church to be multi-generational. For those to come along behind those that are older to fill in and take the stand once the older ones are gone. Uh, uh, I love having Troy and Victoria with us, and it's a joy to have them both that, who love the Lord and want to serve Him. So now you're going to get to hear Troy preach this morning. Brother, come preach to us. Thank you, Paul. Uh, it's good. Uh, this is typically where I'm not on stage. Uh, as Paul said, Pastor Carl, our lead pastor here at First Baptist Church, is in North Carolina. He's doing some more seminary classes, uh, so I'm sure he'd appreciate prayers through that. There's also a pastor's conference that he's a part of this week, along with uh, one of our other elders, Nathan Winters. Um, and so you can be praying for them while they're gone and their families are still here. I'm sure that they would appreciate that. Um, like Paul said, it is a joy to be here. I am excited. Uh, I could probably use some prayer. Uh, being from Nebraska, uh, the football team hasn't been doing so good, and uh, my wife can tell you firsthand that uh, my attitude <laughs> kind of gets a little soured, uh, typically on Saturdays now, but um, I'm excited to bring the word to you today and uh, talk to you from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, uh, to start out, I'd just like to encourage you, think about the different things that you have memorized in your life. Um, what have you memorized in your life? Uh, maybe you've memorized, like me, lyrics of different songs. Uh, you've probably uh, memorized some answers to the test, maybe right before you're about to take it. Uh, I could relate to that. Uh, maybe you know your wife's favorite color or uh, maybe her favorite type of flowers. Uh, hopefully you have memorized your wedding anniversary date. Uh, if you don't, you're going to need to know those flowers. Uh, you'll need to know what to get her for that for sure. Um, and hopefully you really have some passages or at least verses of the Bible memorized as well. I think that's a really important thing for us. Uh, but if you're like me and you went to a public school for any amount of time in the United States, uh, probably the second thing that you learned, the second thing that you memorized after the alphabet was probably the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, as we uh, gather every morning, what we would do is uh, we would stand up, put our hand over our heart, and look at the flag and pledge our allegiance to the flag and everything that that stands for. It showed us what united us 
uh, and it showed us where our loyalty lies. Um, and as I taught in our discipleship hour just a little bit ago, uh, down in the fireside room in the Bible book survey class, we were going over Deuteronomy this morning. And kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, we have a familiar section in there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is basically the Pledge of Allegiance for the nation of Israel. So I'd encourage you to turn there. That's our passage for, the, for today is Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 9. Uh, this is basically Deuteronomy as a whole is kind of the constitution for the nation of Israel, how they are to live in the land, uh, how they are to uh, govern themselves uh, under the rule of Yahweh. And that's what we see through the book of Deuteronomy. And there in chapter 6 is this Pledge of Allegiance um, that we're going to read in just a little bit. Let me give you a little background leading up to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Forty years before Deuteronomy is spoken and then written by Moses, the people of Israel are in slavery in the land of Egypt. God had promised Abraham about 400 years before that that he would bring them into slavery, but not only that, he would bring them out of slavery to Egypt and, and then go into a promised land that Abraham was dwelling in. Uh, he cho- God then chose Moses to go to the people and to Pharaoh and bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt to worship God at Mount Sinai. And we see that account in the book of Exodus. Um, God shows some amazing miracles through all that process. Uh, There's ten plagues that he brings upon the Egyptians, declaring himself to be supreme over the gods of the Egyptians. Uh, And he then parts the Red Sea to prepare this way to the Promised Land. Uh, The people then go meet Yahweh at Mount Sinai, where uh, they grumble and complain all the way. uh, And Yahweh sets himself up to be their king. They've come out of slavery to Egypt, And now they are to be slaves of God. That's very clear in the text. Uh, The people um, complain and they argue with each other. They try to overthrow Moses many times. But God makes a covenant with them, saying that if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. Uh, This is the Mosaic covenant. This is the old covenant that we see uh, governing the whole Old Testament. Uh, It's different for us today. And we can talk about that at another time, but as we look here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what the people of Israel are functioning from. Uh, God then, after this covenant is affirmed with the people, he brings his people to the edge of the promised land, to a place called Kadesh Barnea. He tells them to go in and conquer it, but the people forget to trust their God. They lose sight of how powerful God is and what he can do. And so they rebel against him and say they're going to go back to Egypt. And God punishes this generation. He kills the ten spies that lead this rebellion immediately. And he says, this rebellious generation needs to pass away in the wilderness. Uh, They are not going to enter into this rest that I have brought them. Instead, they're going to die in this wilderness, and I will raise up the next generation to bring into the, the land that I have promised to Abraham. This next generation is a faithful generation. So after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness then, this new generation has arisen and God is providing miracles for the people daily. Every day they're getting manna from heaven, this sustenance, this bread that can keep them alive in this harsh wilderness. Uh, Their garments and their sandals don't wear out. God is providing for this people in marvelous ways. But the new generation that is going into the promised land, they're not going to always have those miracles. They're not always going to have those daily reminders of God and his miraculous power, his sovereignty over all things in this world. 
Instead, as they go into this land and go into battle, they're going to need to trust God even when they don't see the evidence of him right there clear in front of their eyes. They're going to need to trust him in every circumstance. And that's where Moses speaks and then writes down this book of Deuteronomy for us. In the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses lays out the history of the wilderness wanderings of the people in, uh, after they have come out of Egypt. Uh, then in his next speech, starting in chapter 5, he starts outlining the law, starting with the Ten Commandments, known in Hebrew as the Ten Words, or the Devarim. And these basic, uh, the basic outline of the Ten Commandments is the first four are showing how to have a right relationship with God. And then Commandments 5 through 10 show how to have horizontal relationships with the people around you. And this is what Jesus picks up on. He talks about this very carefully of loving the Lord your God, which is part of our passage today, and also then loving your neighbor as yourself. There's those two parts to the law of loving God and loving your neighbor. They flow from each other. Uh, He also talks about how to have these judgments uh, broken down from the Ten Commandments. How do you apply those to your everyday life? And that's where our passage falls today as Moses is outlining the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods besides me. So if you have your Bible open now to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to start reading our passage starting in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now these verses are often referred to as the great Shema, Uh, In Hebrew, based on the word hear, this call to attention uh, is Shema in the Hebrew language. And so let's look at this uh, great Shema that the uh, Orthodox Jews even recite this today, twice a day, kind of like our Pledge of Allegiance in America. They say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now it seems like a simple sentence, but really it's quite difficult in the Hebrew. That's really based around four words. Um, You have Yahweh, Eloheinu, Yahweh, Echad. And so what does this mean exactly? You have Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one, or alone. How do we make sense out of this? Well, the grammar is difficult, which has led to several different conclusions. But let let me give you mine. Uh, It's really the first point of this message, that we need to worship and love Yahweh alone. We need to worship and love Yahweh. Yahweh alone. That's the first point of this message. Think about the context for where Israel has been. Egypt is extremely polytheistic, but Yahweh has attacked all of those deities, uh, and he showed himself victorious and supreme over all of them, showing that they were nothing at all. Uh, He did that through the ten plagues. Furthermore, Israel had just defeated two really powerful kings east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, as they showed, uh, he showed that Yahweh was stronger than their supposed gods as well. Yet shortly after that, Israel started to look to the gods of the Midianites for sexual pleasure at Baal Peor, really close to where they are now. Yahweh punishes the people with a plague that breaks out and again shows that he alone is to be worshipped. That worship of Yahweh must be exclusive. This great Shema is meant to be like a pledge of allegiance, reminding the people of Israel where their loyalty must lie. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. That's that whole passage there. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. 
that comes from that first commandment, you shall have no other gods beside me. I like how Paul put this a few weeks ago as he was preaching on the cost of discipleship. He said, God doesn't just want to be given priority in your life. He demands preeminence. In other words, you don't want God to just be number one in a long list of things, but he has to be first and only. First and only. Yahweh alone is worthy of this worship. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. He goes on to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This verse is hopefully very familiar to us. Uh, Jesus quotes this as being the greatest commandment, and from this one flows all the rest. The word for love here is achab. Uh, it is distinct from chesed, uh, which is often translated loving kindness or steadfast love. Instead, this achav, it carries with it the connotation of emotion and feeling. This isn't just an obligation. This isn't just something that we're commanded to do. But this is a love that is feeling. It's emotional. This is relational. This is the word that the Hebrew Bible continues to use about the human relationships that people have, including the relationship between a husband and his wife. This ahav is a deep feeling of emotion. Uh, One lexicon even described this word as desire or a breathing after, um, bringing with it the picture of this desperate chase and need. This love compels. It, It causes you to do something. It causes action. And now moving on from that, you have love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I could go into a deep word study about heart, soul, and might, or strength, uh, what those things were, mean in Hebrew, but I don't think that would be fruitful. I think it's pretty clear to see what Moses is saying here, even in our English translations. Uh, the idea here is that this worship is undivided. This love for God is undivided. You must worship Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There is no room for anything else. Again, flowing out of verse 4, there is no room for this worship to be divided among, among any other deities or things. This worship has to be all for Yahweh and from all parts of you. Again, this first point, you must worship and love Yahweh alone. And that brings up our second point then. Your love for God must be taught. Your love for God must be taught. Starting in verse 6, it says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your love for God must be taught. The book of Deuteronomy is very concerned about the future of the nation of Israel. It's very concerned about the future. It is a book that outlines all the expectations of the people moving forward in this land they're about to go conquer. The specific people that Moses is talking to, they've experienced God's faithfulness even through the rebellion of themselves and their parents. But just because they are currently experiencing miracles like God's provision of manna every day for them to eat, that will not always be so. Moses warns the people not to forget what God has done, and especially not to let future generations forget what God has done. Twenty-nine times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about the importance of future generations, 
upholding these covenant stipulations uh, with Yahweh. Israel will be held accountable throughout time. They must pass down these expectations to the other generations. And six times in the book, Moses explicitly tells the people that they need to be careful how they teach the the future generations so that they don't forget. We have one of those here in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently. So how is this done? I think it should be very instructive for us today uh, that we need reminders because we too quickly forget. Think about your own life. How do you make sure to remember something that you want to do? Uh, Maybe you put it in your phone uh, or tie a string around your finger. Uh, Maybe you set an alarm on your watch or put something you need to take with you by the door. Uh, I do all those things, yet somehow I still forget things. Uh, Even if we claim to have a great memory, which I don't, uh, we forget things far too easily. And God knew this. Moses knew this. Israel had a, uh, they had a propensity to forget. So different leaders set up specific monuments for memory. They get in our way and remind us uh, of what God has done. Here's just a, a few examples of what things uh, were meant to keep Israel remembering what Yahweh had done. First, you have the Sabbath. Each week is a sign of the covenant. This is a weekly reminder, a weekly progress report of, of how you are doing upholding the covenant. Now, there's several holidays outlined in the law to remind the people that uh, at different times of the calendar year of what God has done. Uh, Moses keeps a jar of manna in the Ark of the Covenant along with Aaron's staff that buds uh, and flowers. Um, we see that in the book of Numbers. Um, Joshua also sets up 12 huge stones after miraculously crossing over the Jordan River, uh, which is right there at the beginning of the book of Joshua. And then he sets up a huge stone at Shechem when the covenant is, re- is renewed in the promised land, when they have seen how God has provided for his people this promised land. And we also see uh, Samuel raises a stone called Ebenezer, uh, reminding the people, this far the Lord has brought us. With the implication, he's going to continue to be with us. Let us remember. Uh, We also see David, after he kills Goliath, he keeps a keepsake. He takes the sword of Goliath to remember the faithfulness of his God. He also writes many songs to remember God's faithfulness to his covenant. And in the New Testament, we see this as well as the early church gathers on Sundays to celebrate and remember Jesus' resurrection. They also partake in communion or the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus' sacrifice, the new covenant, and his promised second coming. All throughout the Bible, there are reminders set up because we too often forget. If this love that the people are to have for Yahweh is supposed to be passed down throughout all future generations, they needed reminders too. It had to be taught. If you go to Israel today, you'll see some people uh, with little boxes tied to their uh, wrists or on their foreheads. You'll also see in doorways uh, something called a mezuzah uh, that is meant to follow this instruction very literally here uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. But overall, I think we can look at the principle uh, that this is teaching that learning and knowing this love for God has to be a full-time ordeal. Let's look at the text there. You shall talk of them, specifically the instruction to worship Yahweh exclusively, uh, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's really taking care of every activity that you could be in. Putting reminders in front of your eyes and on your hands, the body parts that you rely on most in this life, 
that is showing how desperately the people need to remember this love of Yahweh and to pursue it. So what is our application in our world today? In shaping, in shaping the next generation uh, with our life of love, we need to be fully committed to it. And that's not easy. Really, it's just what Pastor Carl has talked about in this, this series that we just finished up on a devoted church. We need to be devoted to God's word. We need to be devoted to the lost. We need to be devoted to our own family in unity. And we need to be devoted to prayer. That's the only way that this can happen. Uh, this has to be a full-time thing. You can't just be in part way. Bringing your kids to church every Sunday, but not investing in their personal spiritual walk the rest of the, their life, the rest of the week, that's just not going to cut it. Rushing home immediately after the service to watch a football game instead of fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in Christ communicates to others what's most important in your life. We can't just claim this kind of love, but then show no evidence of it. We need to know that a love for God is both internal and external. That's what James writes all about in his book in the New Testament. If there is a genuine faith and love for God, it will show in your actions and your words. There's no separation between the two. Jesus talks about this too. He says very bluntly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's in John 14, 15. Look it up. Don't trust me. Just look it up. He says it himself. Action always follows true beliefs. So think about it. What are you teaching? What are you communicating? That's our second point this morning. Your love for God must be taught. And that brings us to our third point. Uh, love for God must be a lifestyle. Love for God must be a lifestyle. Now we've kind of already hit on this point, but I think we need to bring it up again. This lifestyle of internally and externally meditating on your love for God has to be constant. But in that lies the problem. We're human. That's it. We're doomed. We are human and we are sinful by nature. We forget and fail because of our sinful flesh. We battle with it all day long, every day of our lives. So where is the victory? How can any of this be possible? Well, Moses knew the problem way back there in 1406 BC. He also knew the answer, though. We need a new heart. And that's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. God has to do a mighty, miraculous work in our lives to make this possible. In Moses' day, the only, only the hope had been revealed. That wasn't part of Israel's covenant with God. This new heart was not part of that covenant. But this hope is expanded upon by Jeremiah that God will make a new covenant in the, covenant, in the coming days. Ezekiel, too, continues to see this hope built upon, as God says of this new covenant, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. That's Ezekiel 36, 26. What a hope we have more than 500 years before Jesus was born. Friends, we have this opportunity. We can worship Yahweh alone and constantly in our eyes and in our lives, but that's not based on our own willpower. That will never do it. The only way to have this hope is through belief in Jesus paying the price for our sins and bringing us a restored relationship with God, a new life and a new heart. This constant, never-interrupted, exclusive love of God can only be done through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We are sinful and broken from birth, with no way to have any relationship with the one true God other than as his enemy. We can't follow his law, and we can't remove our sins. But thanks be to God that he has made a way. He sent his son Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, to take our place and pay the penalty that we deserve, but could never pay ourselves. Jesus died a real death, but rose again to an equally real life, showing proof that he can conquer our sin and death. He can give us the new heart that we need. And friends, that's our only hope. We have nothing that we can offer. God has done it all. If we want to live a life pleasing to our Creator, it starts with trusting in Jesus to make us new, to trust Him alone, to bring us from darkness into His marvelous light. 2 Peter 2.9 We have the promise in 1 John 1.9 saying that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The only way that we can love Yahweh alone, teach future generations how to love him, and make it a constant, never-ending lifestyle is with a new heart. God has made the way. The only answer is trusting in him. If you haven't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, today is the day. He can take care of it all, so I beg you, please let him. Praise the Lord that we can have this assurance. Jesus himself proclaims this truth in Revelation 21.5, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. The Creator knows how to make new things. Let Him make you new today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for what you have done. We thank you for your word and the assurance that we have. Um, God, we praise you for what you have done, uh, what you have revealed to your covenant people, Israel. And God, we thank you that we don't live under the old covenant, but that you've made a new covenant through the blood of Jesus that can bring us the forgiveness of sins. Uh, All sins that we have committed, past, present, and future, have been paid for already at the cross. God, I pray that uh, if there's anyone in here today that does not know you, that has not trusted in Jesus' life-saving blood, uh, that they would today. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, bring them to someone that can pray with them, that you would convict their heart and, and help them to confess their sins and to repent of them. 
to, to see that it's only in following Jesus alone that any of these commandments, to love you alone, to teach future generations of this love, and uh, to make it a lifestyle, a full-time part of our lives, not just a segmented thing once a week. That's only through the Spirit. And so we thank you that Jesus has gone and, and sent the Spirit to us, that we can have that guidance and that push, that power. Um, God, we thank you for what you have done, for what you have proclaimed, and what you have, uh, what you have done in our hearts as well. Um, Lord, we, we love you, and we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.